don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 20. So uh, we finally made it. Is it, to... is it 20? Yeah. Okay. Unless I've miscounted again. I'm pretty sure it's 20. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about 2018's Leave No Trace, directed by Deborah Granick. Based on the novel My Abandonment by Peter Rock, who I'm not super familiar with. I'd never heard of him, but I, I looked him up after I watched this movie, and he's pretty prolific. He teaches yeah. at Reed College in Oregon, a, an extremely liberal uh, establishment. It, when I was trying to get a job uh, back at, from the fall through the spring to the summer, I applied for a job at Reed College. Didn't get it, obviously. But uh, applied for for one there. Uh, but, you know, it's a pretty well-known, like you're saying, like liberal. Yeah, uh, I, re- I remember uh, reading in high school, someone gave me a book by a guy, uh, writer named Donald Miller, who was sort of a, maybe a uh, founder of the sort of Christian hipster movement we were talking about a couple episodes ago. Uh, but he was just like, an acceptably Christian writer who also like, you know, voted for Democrats. And so he was like, cool, but there's memorable scenes at Reed college in his book. I think it's called blue, like jazz. Uh, anyway, Which is a cool title. Yeah. If nothing else. Yeah. And, it, and, and the, the sort of epigraph that introduces that book is, uh, is cool. And it's, t- it's about how, uh, jazz doesn't resolve typically, you know, and how how people are looking for stories and and mythologies that resolve, and that's that's really not. He his argument is like that's not what Christianity is, and it's it's more like jazz than it is like a symphony or whatever. Uh, anyway, just to start off completely off topic, read college. Reed College, Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> um, directed by Deborah Granick, who is best known, or up to this point has been best known for the movie Winter's Bone, uh, which I want to talk a little bit about Deborah Granick and how she seems to be finding these young female actresses that just knock it out of the park yeah, in her uh, movies. What, what's it, a Thomasina something? Thomason McKenzie. Thomas, man, she from was, New Zealand. She was great. Yes. Um, Granick also did a movie called Down to the Bone that I have not seen. Um, Is that the one with uh, Woody Harrelson and Antonio that, Let's play it to the bone, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, the funny story, when I saw that on her filmography, I was like, wait a minute, that can't be right. Well, that's the one with uh, Brendan Fraser. That's Monkey, that's Monkey Bone, bone yeah. Well, this is uh, Vera Farmiga, plays a, a mother with a cocaine habit that she's hiding. Oh. Sounds good, I just have never seen it, that but that was her first. Nut, yeah. But those are her sort of three. I was kind of, I was looking at it. She had down to the bone, winner's bone. It's too bad she didn't call this one something with a bone and have it be the bone trilogy. Yeah. Bone Tomahawk. Did you see that? Uh, no, but I've heard that it's, it, it's, it's interesting. fucking crazy. We were talking about Richard Jenkins a couple of weeks ago. He's good in that movie. The, this guy who did a brawl in cell block 99. Oh, okay. Made bone Tomahawk. The, the bone ultimatum. <laughs> The Bone Collector. 
The Bone Collector. So incidentally, that's Matt's dog's favorite movie. <laughs> the Bone Collector. Now he likes the Thin Red Line. That's it. That's his favorite movie. Uh, so, Just to fill you in, I've lost my copy of the Thin Red Line and accused and, me, and of I've accused Matt misplacing it, of misplacing it. I've accused everyone in my life of misplacing it, except for myself. Yeah, true addict behavior. Uh, something listeners may notice. I hope, if not, then then why even try anymore is that the audio quality should be a little bit better uh on this episode and going forward because i, I invested in some new we've come into equipment. some money here uh <laughs> not, not exactly <laughs> we came into some cheap equipment yeah uh our, our good friend good friend cory uh who will is co-host of will watches cory's canon with upgraded his his rig so to speak and so hooked me up with like the little brothers we are. Yeah, like the, the bastard stepchildren. We, we got the hand-me-downs. But uh, working well, um, I'm assuming. So should have a little bit better audio quality. And also, as like a preview, whenever you guys get around to it, uh, you're going to have a very special guest star on the next episode of Will Watches Corey's Canon. It's true. We're not going to give it away who it's going to be, but it's Matt Spencer. Yeah. Um, not not Dr. Spencer yet, technically. Not Well, ABD, so very technically, like yes. Almost. But even more technically, no. It's like, how long till you're Dr. Spencer? Like, with no asterisk. August. Asterisk. Asterisk. On August 9th, I think, is when it's conferred. Basically, we'll have a doctor on our show. We'll watch this course canon for the next episode and we'll and we'll be talking ca- talking we'll be taking calls so if you have any health issues <laughs> that you that would be awesome i can tell you what book to read to help you <laughs> cope with your your uh, imminent death have you heard about these things jency was telling me there's like this job that some people have where you're basically a life coach but it's like by way of literature so people like tell you their issues and you just like prescribe books so just like imagine a psychotherapist who like can't talk to you they can just recommend books for your problem like that sounds a little fucked up but it also sounds awesome it also sounds like what i want to do with the rest of my life i just want to give everyone the denial of death by ernest becker and be like this is the truth deal with it I'm not sure. Write it might, the, might create more problems than it solves. But. Write them a prescription for the Lorax or something. <laughs> yes. So, uh, getting into the movie, which is what what we're here for. That's what the, the people came for. Mm-hmm. It, it has the rare distinction of being a movie that held, I don't know if it still does, I'm assuming it does, holding a uh, 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I'd never even heard of this damn movie. I had kept seeing it like on Amazon and stuff and like coming across it when I was looking for sort of environmentally related films, which is something I do on occasion. And also because Ben Foster, uh, as we've talked, as we have talked about, we're fans of his and I'd looked at his filmography and seen this movie come up and I'd never heard of it either. Uh, Ben Foster, I, I decided as I was watching this film is Ryan Gosling's like chiller redneck brother. And he, every role he's in, he's really good yeah. in it. Uh, all the ones I've seen, he, his big sort of 
kind of award-winning role was Hell or High Water that he yeah, won a Spirit Award for. So good, man. Yeah. Um, which is just a, a good movie in general. But yeah, it held 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. A couple of critics pe- picked it as their best film of 2018. Mark Kermode from The Observer and uh, in Jolly Old England and Kenneth Turin of the LA Times picked it as the best film of 2018. Guarantee that Rex Reed hated it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was nominated for a few Spirit Awards, didn't win any. Um, and it was it's the second film that Granick adapted from a novel with her writing partner Anne Rosalini. Here's something also that a producer. blew my mind. I've only found this out after I watched the movie. It's rated PG. Which is, is something I kind of want to talk about because it's like... It's like technically it's PG, but like spiritually this is like... To me, this was like NC-17. This is some dark, dark territory. Yeah, it's surprisingly... I, and it's mostly the people around Will and, and Tom, the, the two central characters in the movie, uh, make it appear as if it has this sort of nefarious... like foreboding sort of aura around what they're doing but to them they keep sort of justifying it as being this is just the way we live and, and that sort of thing so it, it see and it doesn't really take on any sort of feeling of danger really until they trek off in the second half of the film and then will gets hurt and uh that's when it sort of becomes real that what they're doing has this element of danger mm-hmm. um but yeah the, i did not know that it was rated pg i was not paying that close attention to it so that's kind of surprising. It just seems, it feels like an R-rated movie just because it's so sort of psychologically intense and you just think there'd be like one, you know, somebody says fuck at some point when he, you know, they just don't. It's weird. Yeah. Surprisingly clean film. I mean, um, it, like I said, it's like technically, it's like they don't, you know, they don't swear, there's no yeah. sex, there's no... Um, Violence. Yeah, there's no like direct sort of explicit violence. It's like, yeah, technically it's PG, but it feels so much heavier than that. And a, a lot of it, something that that I noticed about it, was that so much of the film takes place in sort of silences that would otherwise be filled with, you know, dialogue, maybe in like a, a more involved. And I, I'm using involved in like a negative connotation as in over explaining things in a, mm-hmm. in a screenplay. Um, so I think in the writing, they've left those spaces where the actors have kind of filled in, especially uh, Ben Foster. They're like his silences in the movie kind of weigh a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way, even the way that him and him and his daughter communicate, where they even have that like, uh, like that's not it, but that's, right. that was sort of hereditary. Yeah, that was hereditary. Like that, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh. <laughs> uh, that's how you communicate with the spirit world. What they do is like the like thing, like you do to a horse, or like a squirrel sound almost. Yeah, and and something I noticed about it immediately the first time they did it because it they do it when they're like going to bed, they're like in the tent, and they do it before they they go to sleep. Is that it has the same sort of number of sounds as saying "love you." Mm. So yeah. I, every time they did it, I read it as them like not directly saying "I love you," but like that's how they would communicate yeah. with one another. Yeah, that makes sense. And so much in the film is them just sort of being near each other, like looking at each other, and not really saying what's going on. And the few times that Tom does try to sort of come out and be like, 
dad I don't want to leave or whatever it may be he just doesn't respond he sort of sits quietly or says like get your stuff or whatever it may be yeah and that that really I mean it's a very realistic film and it's like formally realistic and uh, and so I, I was going to say the film is sort of constrained by that but it, I think it's it's not really it is constrained in what it can do by its by its genre but it's doing exactly what it wants to do because it wants the uh, the things fueling you know the narrative we're seeing to be uh, peripheral or we, it wants the audience to have to imagine precisely what it is that has happened to both of these main characters uh, what exactly is haunting will what exactly is haunting uh, or why exactly is he being hunted uh, where are they going and so yeah it's realistic that you know it's so frustrating in movies to hear people just like explain things to each other that the characters already know for the sake of the audience and this movie does not do that at all and, yeah. and it, do, it does that because like what I'm saying is like yes that's realistic but it also has a has the purpose of allowing the audience to fill in the blanks and we fill in the blanks at least in my case with the worst imaginable shit <laughs> yeah and it's uh, it's sort of that classic like when you, whenever you take a creative writing class the big thing they always tell you is, is show don't tell like that's the big motto which doesn't always work out because sometimes you have to do some telling right. to kind of get and it I, Go, gauche in uh, the great derangement has thoughts about that yeah. it's really interesting um but in this movie it's definitely more of a showing us and then like you're saying leaving it up to us to sort of fill in the, the blanks and the relationship like we don't we don't learn where the mother went which again is another missing mother something right. we've talked a lot about uh, in right. past films we but, don't but, learn what happened to her but we know that that loss is sort of right and know, i don't a know a spot for them i can't remember how explicit we've been about the distinction between different types of movies that expel the mother like there's a huge difference in say interstellar you know expelling the mothers and this movie because this movie's kind of about that and it's sort of a lament uh, as opposed to a celebration like Interstellar. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Interstellar explicitly rejecting ethics of care and stewardship and all these feminine, you know, in quotes, feminine things. And uh, and you see the effect on Will. Is it Will? In yeah. Leave No Trace? Yes. Somehow I missed that. It, they don't uh, really, I don't know that they ever say his name. Really. Gotcha. Uh, but you see the effect of his missing wife and the, the effect on Tom of her missing mother. Uh, so there, the, I, this movie in no way is like a celebration of that. And in fact, it's like at the end, once Will sort of lets his daughter go, he's kind of reduced to the state of an animal. You know, she's leaving food in the tree for him, and he's just going to be this 
mountain man. Feral. Yeah. Dude. Yeah. And so if you think about, I, I was thinking about this movie in kind of weird ways on a sort of archetypal level where you have Tom as the, uh, you know, this young person who's literally being sort of dragged, drug around by her father uh, with a mother she can't even remember. Uh, and so it's really kind of sad if you read it that way. And, and if you read it, if you sort of generalize that psychologically, like the missing feminine, uh, the controlling sort of patriarchal blah, 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 blah. Um, but it's once he lets her go that he's just he's he can no longer experience any sort of love or joy or community he's just this animal in the mountains and it's sort of it's illustrated really well at the very end when he's walking on that sort of logging road or whatever it yeah. is and then he just ducks into the the overgrowth Off and it's just gone path. yeah and that's the last time we see him. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, saying that that he lets her go, I think it kind of goes the other way too. That she's letting him go because that's where the the scene at the end where they're walking and it, they're making their third or fourth escape from civilization, kind of in the film, and she just stops and just won't go any farther. And then that's when she drops that line. That was just like the heartbreaking sort of crescendo of the movie where she says, "I know you would stay if you could." And that's sort of where it's like, oh, oh my god. The the best line in the movie to me is when she's when when they're at the place, the sort of community in the mountains at the end, and she sees him start packing. She says the same thing that's wrong with you is not wrong with me. Yeah. That to me is just like you said. There's not a ton of dialogue, but what there what is there is just sort of spot on. Yeah. And she sort of Tom. One thing I want to mention real quick is that uh, I think it's sort of interesting that they chose to keep her name the same in the film as in real life. And I don't know why that is, because usually they'll do that with like a a really young actor to make it a little bit easier for them to sort of respond to dialogue and stuff like that. Um, Or with like comedies. Yeah, that'll happen sometimes. I think they did like in uh, Knocked Up, all those guys are like their first names are the same yeah. as their characters. And just uh, last night watched an episode of High Maintenance if you ever watched that yeah, on yeah, HBO yeah. and it had uh, it was guest starring Jemima, whatever her name is that was in Girls. Oh yeah. The, the British uh, one. Yeah. I, uh, I don't remember her last name but her name in the in that episode of High Maintenance was she was playing herself basically or a gotcha. version of herself. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting the way that they, they kept the name the same. Anyway what was I saying? It's interesting how she, I need to stop saying interesting. It's driving me crazy. Like every time I hear myself say it, I die a little bit on the inside. It's uh, illuminating the way that we see. And we, we won't say, inter- we don't want to say interesting because of Captain Fantastic, which is a movie we yeah, will probably a, make some uh, reference to. It's a meaningless word. Um, but she discovers things about her dad piecemeal um, and through her own experience. And then we have the scene where he leaves to go to town to get food and then she's alone in the cabin and uh, in their important paper bag that they carry around, she finds the newspaper article about the the sort of group of veterans that are dealing with suicide within their, yeah, it was like their uh, squadron un- or whatever. Unit stalked by suicide seeks to yeah. save itself. It was like a weirdly alliterative 
phrase that I felt like kind of called attention to itself. It's like this writer was just like the, whoever wrote the article within the world of the movie was trying to be like cute with it. And it was like inappropriate for the subject matter. Yeah. And then you see it come out in a few other, like those little details that aren't like, you know, like we were talking about, they don't, we don't linger on them too long, but we get them and they, they're meaningful in the context of the film. So for instance, when they go to the VA hospital so he can pick up his drugs so he can go sell them to the, the other veterans, um, she meets the guy that's at the table, like giving out free stuff. And one of the things he's giving out is a, a gun block, I think is what it was called. And it's a thing to put in the barrel of a gun that says something on it. And he's like, it's to put in a put into a gun. So you have to see it and sort of take it out before you do anything with it um and the implication is if you go to if a veteran who's you know struggling with with whatever it may be goes to kill themselves they'll see that and it might like give them enough pause to deter them from doing it uh that sort of thing and when he says that tom just kind of there's this moment where you can sort of see that she's the wheels are turning and she's kind of thinking about her dad and he's on these medications and he acts so unlike everybody else she's like oh well maybe he's in some kind of danger from himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, never directly stated. Um, but I think at the end when she's sort of realizes she's got to let him go off living to live in the woods by himself. She's like, well, this is, it's either this or he can't live. So I'll take this. It's, it's weirdly the, the phrase I keep thinking of is like the latency of war um, is similar to a lot of the things I think I've talked about on this show with uh, first reformed. And it seems uh, like the problem is very similar between Will and Toller. And there's just a little bit of a happier ending with First Reformed where he comes into a new way of being outside of this uh, completely sort of traumatized, again, at the hands of war. His, you know, Toller's son has died. Uh, the implication is in, in Leave No Trace that He's a veteran. I mean, he goes to the VA, he gets these drugs, but there's, again, there's no details about like what happened. Um, But yeah, there's this, this war is just like latent in these characters and you see the spillover into domestic life. um, And, and you see Toller kind of escaping that at the end of first reformed and you see will, trying desperately to escape um you know he seems to put all his all this you know put stock into this idea that he can escape but it, like what's he escaping from and that's what you see at the end uh, tom sort of realizing the absurdity of just meaningless forward motion they're going nowhere it's like the the woman that takes him in she's like where were you going and she's like <laughs> yeah. I don't know, you know. Yeah, we didn't uh, really know. We got and and he at that point in the film he doesn't. That's when they get out of the the truck, the nice trucker that gives them a ride, and they just sort of take off into the woods. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I guess he was kind of looking for one of those cabins, but didn't really know where they were. It was just sort of going off. Yeah, um, but it's interesting to think about this film if it has a contemporary setting with the the year in, it, in which it came out. So that's twenty eighteen. That's 15 years after the invasion of Iraq. So that's, you know, 15 years of this this conflict that's been going on. And 
Tom is right around that age, I guess. So I guess the implication is she's born either kind of during his deployment or maybe immediately after he comes back, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. Um, and is part of that generation that is, you know, in high school and college now that were born after 9-11, after the invasion of Iraq, after all that stuff, but are still living in a world in which we're at war. And it's, it's interesting and, and to see. And no one knows it, apparently. Yeah, everyone sort of, it, it, it's sort of faded into the background so much that it's just kind of a part of everyday life. Right. It's sort of like, like we've talked about with the idea that someday climate change will be so, will be undeniable. But no, it's like the worse it gets, the harder it is to see because it becomes integral, integrated in, into your life. And so as climate change becomes more prominent, like like, like war, um, it just becomes part of your new normal. Yeah, and it's, you know, you can imagine in a few decades you have kids going for spring break on the Mississippi Sea, where Louisiana <laughs> used to be. Uh, that sort of stuff. But in the film, you know, you do have this, this latency of war, like you're talking about within Will, but then in Tom, it's that kind of struggling to put it together and sort of see like, what, what does this mean for my father? What does this mean for me? Like what, why does he struggle? What does he need to, you know, survive in this world? That sort of stuff. Um, and it's kind of, it's heartbreaking to see them, Uh, sort of struggle with this especially in those scenes like at the end or like when they're leaving and she doesn't want to leave and and uh, we get these long lingering shots of of her packing her things and uh, that scene when they're leaving the the house on the the Christmas tree farm which we need to talk about a little bit more uh, she picks up the two like toy horses that are on her windowsill and just kind of like looks at them and is like oh the, the things that we that we had that now we're going to give away for reasons i can't fully comprehend i'm gonna try some we might have to edit this down okay so this is a uh, psychologist or psychiatrist bessel van der kolk and this is from a youtube video where he's at a conference discussing his book the body keeps a score he's like a trauma psychologist and he focuses focuses on a lot on uh ptsd and I could not help but thinking about this sort of idea that he says right here as I was watching Leave No Trace with all of its mentions of PTSD and treatment of veterans and all that. Men will be killed on the battlefield because it happens in every fucking war. Um, You can go to war, but people who come home, many of them will, will be almost impossible for them to have loving, intimate relationships with their loved ones and their kids because being at war tends to destroy that capacity in people. Um, About half of the people who come home will become alcoholics or drug addicts because after every other war, that's what happens. And so if you go consciously in this war and you really put it to people's minds, um, that's your choice. But the facts are that you will bring the war home to people's homes and families. Of course. Yeah, so right. I mean, that's it's hard. How could you not? If I just watched that a couple weeks ago, that's just like on the tip of my tongue. Uh, while I'm watching Will sort of uh, lose or struggle with the ability to even have anything close to a human relationship, he's sort of 
even when he they come across the sort of ideal situation it's he can't stick around yeah and we've seen this sort of before so like chris kyle we see it with him although with him because he's you know a great american hero chris kyle he overcomes it and becomes like a source of strength for other veterans and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. where with will it's a far more i don't know maybe not realistic isn't the term because i don't know what that experience is like right um but it's a very more it's less optimistic yeah it's less uh it feels less like a story that's being told like a hollywood narrative to me the the american sniper story feels very manipulated And even if those are the basic truths, you know, even if, okay, he struggled with this and then he overcame it, uh, it's glossed over. The real, the reality of the struggle is not portrayed. It's like, oh, he almost hurt a neighbor's dog. Yeah. And uh, whereas in this, Will cannot overcome what's happening. He can't, you know, he's, he's not taking the medication, which, you know, whether or not that would even have any sort of positive effects is kind of up in the air depending on the person and so uh, his sort of only uh, way of dealing with it is to disappear into the woods basically to disappear off the to drop off the map and it kind of in a less depressing way reminded me of uh, the end of Manchester by the Sea I know exactly what you mean where uh, the what's his name Casey Affleck his character um well another problematic uh, person right Casey Affleck yeah. but his character at the end is having that discussion with his his uh nephew and he's sort of telling him like I'll move back to Boston we'll do this we'll do that and his nephew's like why can't you just stay and then they have that moment where he's like I can't I can't beat this mm-hmm. like this isn't something I can handle I remember right after I saw Manchester by the Sea in the theater, somebody like asked me like, what, what's it about? And I said, it's about how life is too fucking hard and yeah. how so many stories are about lying to you about that. Yeah. Like that, you can, you can overcome it, but sometimes and that's you can't. And that's a very popular sort of, uh, uh, you know, we're in the Bible belt here and it seems like, I don't know what verses people cite, but there there's this, notion that people try to ground biblically that god will never give you any struggle that you cannot handle that's you know we live in the best best of all possible worlds and any problem you encounter is a problem put there by some sort of benevolent force and it is it is there for you to apply yourself and overcome and both Manchester by the sea and leave no trace sort of say, no, life <laughs> is too hard. And, and what's so smart to me about, um, leave no trace is it seems pessimistic. And, and of course it is in some ways, but, but it's really, to me, it feels like a very, it felt like a very beautiful, anti-war position it's like it's not that life is just you know presents you with things that are too hard to overcome it's that we have structured culture and 
politics in a way that creates situations uh, that are insurmountable. Uh, and, and war is not, does not have to be a, an intrinsic part of the human experience. It no. has been forever. And it, and it definitely doesn't have to be a, a, you know, a value, a virtue. It doesn't have to be something that we put a lot of stock in. Right. Right. Um, it's not, you know, it, a way to prove your patriotism or your manhood or whatever. Right. It's kind of the opposite that it, in a lot of ways, both, uh, well, the word neuter comes to mind, but I don't mean it in that way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Sort of neuter you emotionally, like hobble you uh, in a lot of different ways. And so in that way, I think the movie is pretty anti-war, but I think it also advocates for these different ways of, of living within the world, of being in the world. Um, and it's shown through Will and, and, and uh, not Joe, Tom. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Uh, Will and Tom. Joe. Yeah, and, and how they, you know, exist out in the wild when they're out there, but also all the people they meet that have these different ways of sort of living within the world that we see. And what comes to mind specifically is the bee lady. Mm-hmm. So Tom comes across this old lady who keeps bees, and and uh, the lady says, well, I don't wear a suit because the bees trust me, and I've worked really hard for a long time to earn that trust. Mm-hmm. And the implication is, you know, most people don't bother because they try to, you have the suit, you have the smoke gun, you have mastery over the bees. You don't have to worry about whether or not they trust you. You can just take what you want. But this is a lady saying, well, no, they, you know, they, they know I'm not here to hurt them. I take some of their honey and then I put it, put the thing, the honeycomb back and then I leave and, you know, I don't destroy their home or anything. I don't, I don't harm them in any kind of way. And then later on we see uh, Tom sort of illustrating that she has this kind of calmness to her father she she just gets she gets it exactly what that lady was saying she feels that she understands it and she it uh you know because she's lacking uh, any sort of mother figure she just seems kind of enthralled with this woman who who in a very nice turn uh doesn't call the cops at her request at tom's request even though you think that's exactly what she's doing. So she yeah. just trusts this lady and you see why she trusts her and you see an alternative community, a sort of counterculture. Uh, as I was watching it this morning with Jensi and she said, this movie uh, really wants you to see that, that there's a difference between society and community. And... Yeah. You know, and society is sort of this, you know, capital letter generalization. Um, And a community is specific and individual and personal and meaningful. Uh, And so, yeah, it problematizes society. You know, you you must belong to society. Uh, it, 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 It says you don't have to do that, but it does say you need a community of what looks to be sort of like minded individuals or yeah. at least people not being actively dishonest like the uh the church scene yeah <laughs> and, you know that's even what tom says uh, when uh will wants to leave at the end that you know these people are like us and his response is yeah they've been very nice to us but we still have to go um which yeah is is in uh, a lot of contrast with 
the home they're put in before that, which is the Christmas tree farm, which is a weird sort of setting, but kind of perfect to, to illustrate the point perfect they're trying to make. Perfect metaphors there, yeah. Um, so after their tape, we're kind of going through the movie backwards, but whatever. Uh, so after they're discovered in the state park, which is another weird thing to talk about, they are put into this sort of adoptive home, like a halfway home thing, uh, which is a spare house owned by a Christmas tree farmer. And uh, it's just weird to see them when they're driving in, you see all the trees in their perfect rows, which is, uh, you know, again, how you might replant something that's been uh, clear cut or like a, a strip mine or something like that it's like repurposed nature it's like the illusion of nature yeah and it and it looks it, it's very it made me uncomfortable <laughs> sort of seeing so many trees in a straight line it's sort yeah. of like it just feels wrong um and the fact that it's the christmas tree farm. yeah so you see all these religious uh some way uh to granick's credit she finds a way in this christmas tree farm to not satirize but call attention to both environmental and the connections between environmental problems and religious orientation in the clear cutting of Christmas trees or clear cutting of a forest to grow Christmas trees what's what is it that Tom asked did you know God created frogs (laughs) he's like really where'd you learn that Um, yeah and you see the people go to their their really kind of uh, rambunctious church service with the worship music and all that stuff and uh, you probably notice that when they get to the house the guy that owns the farm is like oh you know I heard about your story and thank you for your service or, I don't know if he says that exactly but the implication right. is he has welcomed them to into his home or into this spare home uh, because Will's a veteran mm-hmm. and that's sort of the only reason Right. Uh, or the main motivating reason, um, which again f- sort of fits in with this idea of him being the owner of the Christmas tree farm that is sort of a strain of American. It's like we need to support the troops, we need to go to church and believe in God, we need to have our own small business and dominion over nature, so on and so forth. Right. Um, and then later on, we see Will helping him with the trees. He's like, oh, that's how I make my money. You know, those animals, they, he wants to work at the barn. And he says, no, those are very expensive animals. The trees are how I make my money. And so we see them sort of evaluating the trees and cutting them down and bailing them up. And you see the helicopter flying Clipping in and dropping them, them. To make them perfect for the, the star on yeah, the top. Yeah. yeah. And the guy's explaining, like, we could never sell that tree to a family. Like, that's not a good tree. Uh, a quote-unquote good tree. Right. Um, and so you know the scene it was really kind of poignant and brings all these things together is when the helicopter is flying in the the christmas trees like the the bunches of them and will's sort of in a in a row of trees and he he sort of crouches down and kind of puts his hands over his head and the implication is that this is some effect of you know his ptsd or whatever sort of helicopters trigger whatever he has it's triggered by helicopters because when they're in the city at the beginning there's a moment where he looks up and sort of scrutinizes this he's like it's like he's sort of paranoid about this helicopter uh yeah so we're led to believe that his 
whatever happened to him probably involved a helicopter. Yeah, and so it's this weird combination of this really kind of emblematic piece of uh, human technology, the helicopter, which is used in everything from rescue to war, right? And that we know that he has this sort of negative reaction to, and it's in this setting that should be considered nature or the outdoors, but really it's so regimented and, and so manicured that it doesn't really, it, it doesn't carry any, any sort of signify or any sort of a, it's a word I'm trying to think of, any sort of like relation to what actual nature is or what actual, an actual yeah. forest would be. And it's almost more misleading because it wears the clothes of nature. Yeah. Whereas like no one thinks that the mall is environmentally friendly in yeah. any way but if you have this christmas tree farm it's like oh you're outside you know, i, I work know, outside i work you know, outside i'm in a secluded place and the right. lady but your the, orientation to the world is the same as you know someone selling you know vacuum cleaners or something used cars the yeah the, and the the social services lady or whoever she is that sets them up with the house um when she's selling it to them she's oh it's secluded and, you know it's you'll be kind of where you'll be comfortable and why does she think that because oh it's a farm therefore it is you know way out there and it's it's not part of society all this sort of stuff but really it's it definitely is yeah, it definitely is and they and have the house with like the huge sort of windows in the front and sort of like a sort of like a double wide feel to the house yeah. manufactured home yeah and it seems like Granite sort of goes out of her way to show that the uh, is it like a social worker or whoever it is the lady helping them get set up is, is very kind and very well meaning it's like just because the representative of the bureaucracy is polite does not mean the bureaucracy is good you know Yeah. Uh, just because you put a smiling face on something does not mean it's good for you um, yeah, so I, I kind of hated that character. Yeah, and she comes and oh, I brought you a phone. Because she just she just cannot see the real issues, and she yeah. thinks she's doing the Lord's work, you know. Yeah, and the the phone thing is a good kind of representative of you know what's going on with her because not only does she try to give them phones and that's sort of her way of like you'll need these mm-hmm. sort of like almost as if this is your ID or something like here's here's something you're definitely going to have to have uh, but she's always taking pictures with her her phone so when they find their camp out in the state park she's taking pictures of it mm-hmm. and then when she brings them like food and brings Tom a bike and stuff she's like taking pictures um, to prove that they're a success story or whatever it would be mm-hmm. and she has a line in the movie that kind of uh, caught me off guard because it just I think it's a useful line to think about when it's after they've been apprehended and they've sort of put them in the they put Tom like in the halfway house for teenage girls or whatever and her dad's mm-hmm. off like getting the the mental health exam and all that sort of <laughs> Those stuff. Those questions. The questions, are yeah. Awesome. And uh, she says to Tom, "It's not a crime to be unhomed, but it is a crime to." live on public land or whatever which is just 
such a complicated thing to unpack because first off to say it's not a crime to be unhomed is just patently false in my opinion like you can be homeless but after that you can't be anywhere else like you right. can't sleep on the street they put up they specially design architecture to keep you from sleeping in places that sort right. of stuff it's like yeah that's sort of illogical yeah and then this other idea that it is illegal to sleep to live on public land right it's like well it's public land why is it illegal right and they've been living in this state park this nature reserve and not hurting anyone not damaging anything really um but the whole time they're kind of hiding from people they're hiding from authorities um and when they're found they're forcibly removed and sort of weird to think about it as being nature but you're not allowed access to it outside of the sort of the parameters that are set by the authorities that control it that sort of stuff and that's Uh, sort of that's what uh will says about you know why he wants to leave the uh farm the christmas tree farm it's like they he says something like they were going to make us follow their rules like we had to follow their rules to in order to stay there so it wasn't really kindness it was a contract yeah 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 i mean he had to work to sort of earn his keep there yeah um whereas when they end up at the rv park or whatever it is she's like you can stay as like until you're recovered and then like refuses to to take her money yeah Yeah. it's like well i'll hold a little bit for a deposit but you know you can just keep um so it's just interesting thinking about the idea of uh, not not really what is a home but what will society allow to be a home like where, what are you allowed how are you allowed to live within a society before they step in and say you're doing it wrong mm-hmm. and here's how you should be doing it and what is their who first of all who is they and what is their stake in all of this like what is their motivation for being so uh, violently opposed to this it, it makes me think of if a tree falls and just the just ridiculous ways in which eco activists are attacked and maced and beaten for <clears throat> sitting in a tree mm-hmm. you know it's just so strange how people conflate like like for instance property destruction or refusal to cooperate with personal bodily harm yeah you know like in america you get you know comparable jail uh, prison sentences for like major theft and murder so you can either kill someone or take their shit and it's it's in the eyes of the law similar and that's just insanity I mean, I guess that's sort of what, I mean, if you define, if a country defines itself by its a capitalist economy and you endanger the capital, you might as well be killing people is what the law seems to say. Yeah. Right. You're taking it. Well, it, then even it, how you get certain members of the public to, to sort of uh, commiserate with that is you tell them, well, now it's endangering your livelihood. Sort of like we talked about with loggers or with coal miners or whatever. And so it's not only are you attempting to keep 
the person the people on top from sort of stuffing their pockets a little bit more now you have the people at the bottom saying you're taking food off my family's table mm-hmm. um which you know that's uh, a big complicated thing that keeps coming up because it's not going away right um something i i, I listened to an earlier episode i can't remember which one it was it might have been mother but we used to it seems like in the early episodes cormac mccarthy kept coming up we used to have uh, cormac mccarthy quotes and i was reminded of a cormac mccarthy quote in thinking about the character of will and this is from sutry and the line is he was a man with no plans for going back the way he'd come nor telling any soul at all what he had seen. And that definitely seems to fit uh, Will. And I think it fits in with this theme of sort of pathological escape where I keep wanting to call him Ben. (laughs) Ben Foster's character, Will, feels the need to escape but he doesn't really know what from nor what to. Um, and in the in that novel, Sutri, which is one of my favorite novels of all time, and I recommend it highly, uh, the, the titular character, Sutri, is uh, similarly just always on the move, will not settle down, is fleeing from the sort of life governed by capital S society, bureaucracy, institutions, uh, including in Sutri's case, like the institution of marriage and family. And he's not a super likable character. And, and for a lot of leave no trace, you're kind of, you, maybe you sympathize with Will, but you kind of think he's doing wrong by, by his daughter. And he kind of is. Um, but at the same time, you, sort of understand that something very bad has happened to him and his behavior is is a result of that. And to the movie's credit, there is no bitch ass backpedal. There is no suggestion that most of what will is fleeing is worth uh, sticking around for, you know, the Christmas tree farm, certainly not the city or the, the VA, all these things. Yeah. Are and even at the end, uh, worth escaping. Like w- what he's leaving at the end is basically the perfect community in which him and Tom could live. Exactly. Or, or we're made to think that's what's so smart and seemingly cynical is that is that he happens upon this perfect community. First of all, it's a community of like-minded people. They don't seem to be super crazy religious people. Uh, there's a former uh, military, uh, what do you call it, medic, mm-hmm. who like, if anyone can understand Will's trauma, it's this guy. They have a therapy dog. There's a therapy dog. Um, and that, that adds a sort of layer to the uh, the horse aspect. In, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's sort of maybe why Will wants. We, there's a, a brief scene with him kind of, in the stables, yep. like hanging out with the horse. Yeah, and that's a that's a that's a real thing. There's like all these studies and programs now for veterans taking care of, especially uh, and prisoners too, taking care of like 
abused animals and working yeah. with animals in general. Uh, I had a friend who uh, still has a dog who was part of a prison program where they were like, they bring in dogs and have prisoners train them like right. obedience training stuff. Hmm. And so this <laughs> has this dog that uh, spent some time in lockup. Doing time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he happens upon this perfect community and then Granick slaps us across the face for being naive children and, and thinking that that's what he needed. And it's like, no, this guy, as, as we heard the doctor say earlier in that clip I played, has lost the capacity for fulfilling human relationships and joy and all those things to the point where he's willing to abandon his daughter. Um, so, I mean, he does it tearfully, but he does it. Yeah. And because he realizes he's, he's not really human in the, you know, in the positive sense of that word. So I, I can't really say enough good things about like, I, I just, not only do I feel like this movie is, uh, right. I just feel like it's talking about the right things in 2018 or what was it? 18 or 17? Yeah. 2018. Yeah. This, it just feels, um, feels like it's talking about the right things. Yeah. 2018. Definitely. And like you're saying, not, not backpedaling at all saying like, no, this is, this is happening. Like this is a character that for any attempt he may or may not have made just cannot exist within society as it is structured. Um, it's kind of, kind of funny line early in the film when he's doing the, the questionnaire and the guy it's after he's failed at the computer one, which is like, gives him three seconds to answer true or false and moves on. And then eventually he the gets questions kind of are just built to make you reflect on your life and you, they have to have a yes or no in three yeah. seconds. <laughs> yeah. Cause the first few he flies through them and you can tell he's lying like I get a good night's sleep and he's like, Oh true. But you, you like, no, that's not the case. Um, and then he, he gets so backed up. The guy comes and is reading them to him. And, uh, he reads them one that says something like, uh, I consider myself or I, I, I am a, a team player. And he says, well, it used to be, <laughs> and that's kind of the implication of, um, at one point, you know, no one really, well, that's that's a generalization, but I feel like most people that would join the military have some kind of capacity for teamwork or for being part of something bigger than yourself, even if it is something like. And that's a major draw. Yeah. For for people, I think, who join the military, I don't think any you don't have any super hyper individualistic people. You know, people want to be part of a team. They want yeah. to have uh close friends and contribute to some sort of it's again we've talked about this on the podcast before it's fucking tragic that this is the venue uh that that need for uh teamsmanship and camaraderie gets expressed you know through this through this venue is fucking tragic but but yeah i i read that line the same way you did as sort of a reference to his military service that he was part of some sort of intimate, you know, unit, <laughs> the intimate, unit. the intimate unit. Uh, yeah. And you know, not, not so much anymore. Now he's as individualistic as one can be really. 
Um, just has to get away from from all of them, including you know his daughter, if that's what it comes to. Um, which is sort of an interesting question. If you think about like '90s taglines for movies, where it's like, "How far would you go to protect the ones you love?" or whatever. This movie is, is kind of the inverse of that. Of how far would you go to be able to just exist on on a day to day level? Um, yeah. What it takes for him is survival and squeezing moss to get a few drops of water to make sure he doesn't die of dehydration. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tom wants more than that. Or, you know, doesn't even necessarily want a whole lot more than that, but wants to be part of a community to sort of be connected to the world somehow. And not the world as in like, you know, have the newest iPhone. Have just, a, have she, a Twitter, she wants but, a community. She yeah. wants a, a sense of rootedness. Yes. Uh, which is very understandable. But yeah, it's almost like Will has has to reduce himself. I'm thinking of uh, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's, you know, the term at the top of that pyramid is uh, self-actualization. And his psyche has been so destroyed that it's like he reduces himself to where he wants his entire life to be consumed by the most base animal needs. Like, I'm going to spend my time uh, gathering uh, wood for fire and for warmth and food, you know, just foraging for food because he doesn't want to even, or he can't even exist on the human levels of that hierarchy because war has destroyed that capacity or if not the capacity, at least the desire. Yeah. So it's a goddamn sad movie. It is. It's really good. Like I, I I loved it. I expected to like it just because I'm a fan of everyone involved that I was familiar with. That was the best movie I've seen. I think since, first reformed yeah that's a good one um i mean i i I take shelter freaking ruled but i'd (laughs) seen it before but thomason mckenzie as tom is uh to get back to this idea i never had you heard of her before she had no she had a i can't remember what it's called but i think she had like a tv show like a teen tv show that she was on in New Zealand that did pretty well, but okay. I don't think she's been in anything that I've seen. Uh, she will be now, I assume, because she did oh, so yeah. well in this. Yeah. But um, sort of like uh, Jennifer Lawrence in Winter's Bone, uh, Deborah Granick has this you know young female protagonist that just does a really great job and just is a, it just the her face paired with her voice is, is so sort of perfect for what's going on because there's, her voice is kind of like for lack of a better term girly and like high-pitched and very kind of gentle mm-hmm. um and her face for a lot of the movie is sort of blank in a but blank in a way that's that's not expressionless if that makes any sense so mm-hmm. it's blank but it's not expressionless and it um it's sort of it, she does a good job of giving you the right vibe I think for whatever the scene calls for. Yeah, it's like it's like loyal. You know, she's very loyal, and so the blankness is is almost this tension 
of like not being too miserable in this in these miserable conditions it's like the tension between the misery of her physical conditions and the loyalty to her father equals this sort of neutral uh i call it like a neutral sadness there's there's a sadness to her performance but i don't uh if you just watched this movie with the sound off it you wouldn't think she was like depressed or anything yeah it's sort of like a almost like a wisdom beyond her years Mm -hmm. kind of thing that you have going on um especially with this final realization that she kind of knows she has to let her father go um but yeah it's a it's a really strong performance and it it does what granick did in winter's bone as well where she's talking about these people these characters living on the the kind of margins of society these people that can't adjust for whatever reason so winter's bone you have uh jennifer lawrence who i can't remember the name of her character in that movie katniss uh, yeah katniss yeah katniss every um play, you know part of this family living in the ozarks who you know struggle to get by and their father's gone missing and all this sort of stuff and her uncle's a, a meth dealer and all that sort of stuff um and they're, they're they're living in quote unquote flyover country like in this this world that the average American who is you know upper middle class living in the suburbs is really incredibly far removed from, um, and it's sort of the same here where we take something that is unfortunately pretty well known in our society this idea of a a military veteran suffering with with PTSD and the effects of having been in war. Um, and tells that story in a completely new way from any kind of story that I've seen before. Even if this was, you know, about a father who, you know, hadn't been a veteran and needed to be outside of society for, you know, a different kind of reason, it would be a really kind of interesting, fresh kind of narrative that I I just uh, hadn't seen before. Yeah, it, it, I mentioned Captain Fantastic earlier, and... I was saying before we started recording, there's an interview with uh, Matt Ross who made Captain Fantastic where he sort of says the beginnings of writing Captain Fantastic was he was about to have, you know, he was about to raise a child and he was sort of wrestling with responsible ways to raise a child. And there's an interview with Peter Rock, the author of My Abandonment that this movie is based on where he's sort of saying he was about to raise a child and he was wrestling with those ideas. And it doesn't surprise me because, I mean, that's sort of what the movie's about in in some ways. But uh, Leave No Trace is kind of Captain Fantastic through a glass darkly. You know, it's it's like the themes are kind of similar, but there's just a dark reality permeating Leave No Trace that is in Captain Fantastic it's sort of a quirky kind of you know there's there's a lot more humor and sort of gags uh, in that movie uh, I forgot where I was going with this it, I was I was bringing it back to what you were saying what were you saying oh god I don't know I was talking about being on the margins of society and in Captain Fantastic, the, just the the we'll keep talking about vibes. The kind of vibe of that movie is is different. Where it, even though they're out in the middle of nowhere, uh, it doesn't feel 
secluded, or it feels secluded, but it doesn't feel cut off from anything, if that makes sense. It feels like warmer and kind of, you could see like going out there to visit the family or whatever. Uh, whereas in, in Leave No Trace, it's a little bit more, even though they're not necessarily like struggling to survive, it feels a little bit more desperate. That's what I was um, going to say, is that the environmental implications are a little more prominent in Captain Fantastic than they are in Leave No Trace. I think the part of the pleasure of Captain Fantastic is that, oh, wouldn't it be nice to live this sort of harmonious life uh, with nature and living responsibly and, you know, raising these ubermensch children <laughs> and uh, and leave no trace has no illusions about that it's like this is a retreat you know we sort of talked about that with Captain Fantastic where we sort of said you know what is this retreat in aid of um, what are you accomplishing um, if you're going to raise these great thinkers and athletes how are they going to contribute in any way to to the bettering of the world and is that a worthy goal you know to better the world what does that mean um and like i said leave no trace it's just clear that this is a wounded like a psychologically wounded individual who is retreating from an impossible world um so there are similarities you know kind of obvious surface level similarities but um, when you get down to it they're very different films uh, in terms of like their tone and the, just like the spirit of it it's very different yes and you were talking about uh, these these men kind of writing stories because they're coming coming up to the point of having their own family or having their own children uh, to bring up Corbin McCarthy again that's that was his big motivation behind writing The Road was uh you know had his his son and so that was kind of his way of dealing with you know the complications of, of being a father and so was he so he was having a child then yeah he, very old i was gonna say it seems like he was yeah. probably at least in his late 60s early 70s yeah. i'm pretty sure he had a child like really late in life and that was kind of the road is him thinking about the most extreme scenario you could be in which is father and son at the end of the world and so what what do you do now right how do you provide for uh you know this this child who can't protect himself in in the world's in its worst possible state Um, and and again this theme that keeps coming up is in this podcast is what do you say to your children how do you what what do you leave out what do you include in terms of environmental concerns. Yeah, and that's really not, in this film it's not really addressed um, because it, it is such, like you're saying, it's such a retreat from society and it, to nature, but it's not implicate or it's not sort of stated that Will wants to escape because he has some sort of great love for nature. He just has that much disdain for society that he needs right. to and get that, out of that's it. something we talked about with Nash, uh, Roderick Nash's book, Wilderness in the American Mind. And he sort of calls into question, you know, the question that a lot of people ask is, 
do you, is it nature that you love or is it culture that you hate? Um, and is it possible to love nature without that stark dichotomy? It's just a sort of complicated grass is always greener scenario. So I just was looking it up as you were saying that uh, Cormac McCarthy has two children. He has two sons. Uh, Colin McCarthy, born in 1962, so he was a fairly young man. Then. Well, he's born in 33, so he's like in his 30s. Then. And then he has John McCarthy, born 1998. Wow. Yeah. When he would have been 70, right around 70, late 60s. So yeah, pretty uh, pretty late late bloomer there so those brothers are gonna be uh i'm assuming half brothers uh yes yes half brothers quite a bit of age gap anyway interesting yeah so that is kind of interesting to think about that it's uh, uh we just said interesting twice back to back real interesting fast. interesting interesting <laughs> interesting i'm never gonna say that word again so we have was Which it one born interesting in the, to think about what one born in the 60s so it's like the one is 40 right around when the other one's born which is <laughs> that's got to be strange uh or, you brother, know you, you brothers that could be like grandson yeah depending on on how it's spaced out could yeah. definitely uh yeah weird anyway yeah uh, fathers and writing about being a father and that is sort of like and it's not just fathers being a parent of any kind is something that um at the risk of sounding cliche will will change the way you see the world right um, and make you consider things and I think writing a story like this or like The Road is a good way of sort of exploring the limits of that kind of relationship which go in very different ways so in The Road you have which is a movie we should probably do at some point um, yeah you yeah. have the father sort of sticking through to the very end and then dying of tuberculosis or whatever it is that he has at the end of it and no, sort they of don't, they don't, he doesn't die they go to it's heaven they both die together, and they go to heaven. Okay. Anyway, in the in the story, you have like the father sticking through to the very sort of bitter end, sort of sticking with that obligation till death, basically. And then in Leave No Trace, you have a very different story of doing everything he can to fulfill that obligation of being a parent, but then ultimately just cannot do it. Um, and you could just imagine how different of a story this would be this would be if thomason is not okay with it more or less at the end and how how much that comp would complicate it and sort of make it more difficult or yeah if this had happened say five years earlier in their life when she's 10 instead of 15 or whatever she is yeah uh, it's a completely different moral equation anyway yeah um and something else i noticed about the movie that i wanted to bring up is how other people talk to them sort of people outside of their view of the world talk to them and we already talked about it a little bit with the uh the social worker or whatever she is and when they talk to her and specifically when they talk to to tom the question they keep asking is are you in some kind of trouble like over and over again, like the truck driver, the social worker, the lady at the RV park, they're like, are you in some kind of trouble? Are you running from something? Which they are, or at least Will is, but she always says, no, we're not running from anyone. We're just, 
she's says it's, it's not that kind of trouble. Yeah, it's not that kind of trouble. We're, we're just trying to live a specific kind of life that is, you know, almost impossible to maintain, which is, it's weird to think about, like, living off the grid completely is really difficult to manage. <laughs> like, the grid is almost inescapable. Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, if it was just Will by himself, which it is, at, is at the end of the movie, it's a different story, but because he has this you know, young daughter, that's what complicates everything. Cause you, you know, have to be in school and all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just this question that keeps coming up of, are you in trouble? Like, is something wrong? Are you being abused is also where they go. Like, has anyone ever touched your body without your permission? They ask her at some point, they sort of are trying to make sure that he's not abusing her in any kind of way. Um, it was just interesting to see that the first reaction of all these people is sort of suspicion, like, uh, trying to figure out whether or not this is a some sort of scenario that requires further action, that sort of stuff. Yeah, anything, any relationship or anything that takes place on the margins of this grid is uh, going to come under serious scrutiny because, you know, if you're if you're uh, environmentally conscious, you're a hippie communist. If you're gay, you're, you know, one of the people I say, like, the next step is bestiality. You know, any any sort of thing that is not accepted in the mainstream is just demonized and exaggerated and just fabricated. Yeah. And, you know, if you're, if you're living away from society, it's because you're hiding something. It's because you're right. doing something you shouldn't be doing, um, which is, you know, not the case. They're just out in the woods i was reading an interview like i said with peter rock which is a very interesting name from a pete rock uh biblical perspective but he mentioned thoreau in in uh starting to write the book he said he thought about thoreau and how you know the sort of mythology around walden is that oh here's this guy living off the land in the woods alone away from ever away from society and really you know he's like not that far from town no um at all and that's sort of what's going on with will at least and uh tom at the beginning you th- you kind of think they're out in the middle of nowhere but then you see this like jogger <laughs> you know it's like it's like is it at the greenway or whatever and uh so you realize it's not that, but then uh, Rock was sort of talking about the. He said he sort of reads Thoreau in a sort of misanthropic way, as not as a, like you were saying earlier, not that nature is so great, but that civilization is so oppressive, and that's a. That we were talking last week about the anesthetic of canonization, and that's the sort of point I was making is that. Um, people forget how political Thoreau was. Uh, And that, that may be due to Walden kind of eclipsing civil disobedience, which in my opinion is a much better text. Civil disobedience is radical uh, and smart and kind of uncompromising and and sexy and sexy, Uh, deeply, deeply erotic text there. Uh, no, I I recommend everyone giving a civil disobedience a second look. 
and, and politically engaged is my point there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure how, um, how much I agree with rock saying Thoreau is misanthropic so much as he is like, you don't have to be against people to be against political, you know, political shit, um, against war, for instance, like Thoreau was. Yeah. It, it kind of gets back to something we were talking about earlier, which is being against, uh, clear cutting or, uh, on top removal mining, right? It's not, you're, you're not against the people doing those jobs and using that money to feed their kids or whatever. You're against the, the act itself and that it's, representative of this destruction and harvesting of nature in service of of capital and in service of sort of enriching those that are already very rich and and against the the failure of imagination <coughs> how dare the, you the failure to conceive of a way to do those things to take care of your family in more responsible ways yes you're like oh i have to do this because this is how you take care of your family. well there might be other ways to do it and, then, Better ways. and that brings us kind of full circle back to Gauche of saying, you know, this, this failure of imagination, right? That's a, that's a big problem with, with uh, most things, in my opinion, just a lack of imagination. And, and, just that, not... and Yeah, and that is what movies and books and music and plays, that's what they're supposed to do. TV shows are, I think, are supposed to supply us with that vision. Here's here's what a better world looks like, and here's a plausible way to do it. Um, yeah. And and it doesn't have to be that sort of formulaic, like, oh, here's a blueprint for how you should live. But but it should contain in some way um, or account for those those things. Yeah, like I think it's a fair point to say that we that you and I are both drawn to films that are very sort of unique or sort of have some sort of imaginative take that we haven't really encountered before. And that's not to say, you know, showing me something I've never seen before, but showing it to me in a way that I've never sort of considered it before. Right. So we talk about a movie like, you know, hereditary. It's just a horror film that demonology. Yeah. It's, it it used a lot of like tropes of the genre, but did it in a way that I just never encountered before. Um, And this movie is the same kind of way of this, sort of family drama that's also kind of about a vet that's also sort of about at least in a in a way that's that's sort of present in the things that surround the characters it's about the environment sort of man's relationship to to nature and all that sort of stuff it's doing it in a way that's just i'd never really thought of before that i'd never seen before right um and it's executed really well it's well shot it's well acted it's well written um and it's and it's so refreshing when, like you're saying, the the filmmakers use recognizable elements to to make their point or to to build their vision to build their world. Because uh, we talked about this on the first episode, and I talked about the the phrase that I always have in my head: rearrange the chairs. It's like everything we need to make the world different is there. I mean, that's the world is plastic. There's plasticity to culture. You can rearrange things um, in a way that's more conducive to human health and happiness and all these things. Uh, I really like, I was just reading a little bit from a book called Pathologies of Power 
by Paul Farmer, who, if you're not familiar with, I recommend looking into him. He's a uh, doctor. There's a book about him called Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder. It's a fantastic book. Anyway, um, he does a lot of work with AIDS in Haiti and in like prisons, and he's just kind of a modern day uh, Schweitzer, Albert Schweitzer. And uh, anyway, he uses a term. I don't, I don't think it's not his term, but he uses it in sort of critiquing uh, healthcare, international healthcare, the phrase structural violence, similar to the concept of slow violence in a way, in its sort of institutional feel. But just that word structural, it's like, that means it is susceptible to restructuring. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's kind of what uh, I think responsible and, and, and good artists do is they, they say, look, look what it is and look what it can be. How do we restructure these things into something more conducive to human health? Um, literal sort of physical health and, Paul Farmer's case and maybe sort of spiritual health in the case of the artist. Yeah. And it's a kind of makes me think of a, a quote from the OA, <laughs> which, which is, I was, I almost brought that up because that talk about an imaginative story that yes. sort of uses things you're familiar with to just go to crazy places. Yes. And it's a, this actually, I saw it on a t-shirt that somebody made uh, that was really cool that I almost bought. But it's, uh, I'm going to not get it exactly right, but it's a quote of, uh, it's not a, a sign of mental health to, or mental illness to not fit in with a society that is inherently sick or something like yeah, that. that. That's, that's a, a bit of a bastardization of a, of a quote from, uh, shit. A Krish, quote from Krish, shit. Krish, Krishnam, uh, it's like an Eastern thinker. He's got, he's always like the guy in the philosophy section of like Barnes and Noble. I can't remember his name. Uh, I'd like well, being well adjusted to a sick society is no measure of health. But yeah, that quote is like very similar to that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's so perfect. And Henry Miller is always uh, spitting out iterations of that thought uh, in his critique of like psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. It's like, he thinks the whole project is just like trying to conform you. It's calling health, calling conformity health. Yeah. Um, it's like that, that, a uh, ill adjusted 13 year old t-shirt that said, you laugh at me because I'm different. I laugh at you because you're all the same, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Um, which is, you know, it can become hackneyed and cliche like that, but I think it, at its heart, it has this, this kernel of truth of, uh, you know, just because you go along with everything that is being sort of handed down to you as this conventional wisdom or as this uh, thing that goes without saying doesn't mean that that thing is inherently true or useful or, you know, not harmful to others or to even yourself. Um, yeah, I'm just going to drone on in monotone like Krish- Chomsky for Krishnamurti. There we go. It is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Yeah, there we go. Um, so, yeah. And it's just such a barrier 
to conversation just the very idea that society is sick or or ill or whatever you whatever word you'd want to use um because most people just don't feel that way well yeah it's not that bad (laughs) things are fine it's like it, it it makes me think that those people have nothing to compare it to which for for most case probably not right like yeah. i've never been homeless so i have no no frame of reference for what that would be like right um but that doesn't mean that i can't do my best to empathize with someone who is in that position and there there's another good sort of cliche but true reason for serious art empathy putting you know that's the old that's the classic one putting your the ability to sort of occupy someone else's perspective uh imaginatively so that you have more empathy towards all types of people sounds simple yeah i and as a a sort of flip side of the coin of that i don't know if you've heard of this and i'm not very well versed in it yet so i can't really uh comment on it too much but just the very idea of it, I think, is worth bringing up. Bitcoin. It's something, yeah, have you heard of this Bitcoin? <laughs> um, it's something I heard heard about from uh, our, our mutual uh, sort of mentor, Doctor Doctor Laura White, mm. um, mentioned this to me. It's the uh, it's called empirical ecocriticism. I haven't heard of it. Um, what do you think that would be? Empirical ecocriticism. The first thing that comes to my mind is like empiricism like empirical philosophy empiricist philosophers um what what was it empirical ecology ecocriticism empirical ecocriticism uh well if i think about it more given that we took a class from her called post-colonial ecocriticism maybe empire is the root of empirical uh i give up so it's bringing up this website. Empirical ecocriticism is a branch of ecocriticism that focuses on the empirically grounded study of the environmental narrative in literature, film, television, etc., and its influence on various audiences. The main objective of empirical ecocriticism is to put to empirical tests claims made within ecocriticism and the environmental humanities more generally about the impact of environmental narratives. Now, what do you, what, what does it bring to mind? That sounds like bullshit to me. Uh, it sounds like sustainability. It sounds like, it sounds like literature, the study of literature trying to conform to the limitations of the scientific method, which, which literature is in a lot of ways, a antidote to the scientific method and, and, a a uh, transcendence of that, you know. Yeah, and so that and that's pretty much. And like I said, I haven't. I'm going to learn more about it and read up on it. But for now, that's kind of. Well, I just kind of have that that uh, nutshell version of it. So, yeah, it's it's uh, using, uh, you know, data, collecting data, qualitative measures, uh, to try to understand how environmentally focused narratives affect or don't affect the people receiving them and it kind of to me it's tied into like franco moretti and distant reading and the literature lab at stanford and all this kind of stuff of trying to 
turn the study of literature and the humanities in general into a, a qualitative, almost like a science. You mean a quantitative? Qua- yeah, quite. Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. See, that's why I don't do that. A <laughs> um, hey, quantitative, right? Collecting data, collecting quantities, right? Right. Um, measurable. Measurable yeah. outcomes, that sort of thing. Um, so you're right in saying that I think, at least in, in how I'm interpreting it, it's trying to bring the humanities uh, more in line with what all the money makers of the university do. So what the sciences do, what, you know, like, what does business do? Does business do that? I don't even know. <laughs> oh, yeah. They do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you think about what's so popular in like just in uh, in large corporations now, like quantifying individual employee output just yeah. down to like how many steps an Amazon worker takes in the day. Like, oh, if you're not taking 12,000 steps, you're not meeting the quota. So, yeah, there's major quantification going on in the business mm-hmm. world. So you have that and you have uh, we, you know, what you're saying should be an antidote to that, this idea that we should study things for their aesthetic qualities or for how they make you see the world, whatever it may be, right? All these sort of you know, cliched reasons for why anyone would ever want to read a book. Yeah, and, and, and cliches that have earned their status as such for good reason. They're cliche because they're true and they're part of what it means to be a human being it's almost like this emphasis on this myth of scientific objectivity and the push for STEM is just, it's like people don't want to be human. You know what I'm saying? They just, they don't, they don't, a lot of them, they want to, I told you my recommendation would be the denial of death by Ernest Becker. Uh, They (laughs) don't, they don't want to be human. They don't want to acknowledge the, mess the messiness of uh i, I don't I, I, and that's why i can't even you express know, it i have a fondness for for post-humanism as like a field of of philosophy and thinking and all that sort of stuff and so like carrie wolf has this whole idea of the the pro well it's not just his idea but uh, it's where i got it from this idea of the the prosthetic technology we think of a prosthetic like you lose a leg, you have a prosthetic limb, that sort of thing. But that expands out to everything. So what would be like the ultimate prosthetic technology that everyone has? It's your smartphone that you carry around in your pocket. Well, just, I mean, I was thinking about it with cars. Cars, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's another example. And so, you know, eyeglasses are prosthesis when you think right. about it. Um, so you have this idea that, that it's not like some piece of technology that humans have perfected. And it's not like some weird you know birthright that you should have access to all the information in the world all the time right it's a prosthetic sort of been created by humans in order to be more than human right mm-hmm. um so it, you know in a way i think there is that drive for people to not want to be people right to want to be something more to want to be limitless or whatever right and that, and that's the thesis of the denial of death is that culture itself is a is a sort of collective denial uh, a project to to give our lives meaning given the sort of knowledge of our of our animal nature and inevitable death yeah. so and something else that ties into something you said a minute ago about 
everybody wants everything in the university to be STEM, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or everything in the world, really, to be STEM. Um, another goal of empirical eco-criticism um, is to bring the humanities more in concert with what is going on in other fields, which has been, that's going on for a long time. Like writing programs and universities are always talking about writing across the curriculum and all that sort of stuff. Um, so now it's even more of trying to blend the humanities and the study of literature in particular in with all these other things, right? And sort of make it this new sort of hybrid thing that can more easily serve the goals of the university, which are to produce STEM majors because that's who makes the money, that sort of stuff. Sort of self-reinforcing system that has made it kind of untenable almost to be someone who wants to make a living in the humanities and now trying to sort of forcefully assimilate you into these other fields. It's interesting, given what we were just saying about the denial of death and that sort of thing, that you keep saying the word humanities. Like, the very thing <laughs> yeah. that's being denied go you know goes by this name, the humanities. And so by making it uh, conform to this sort of denial and project of you know, pseudo transcendence of being human, you're sort of discrediting the very name that we give to the study of literature and the arts, uh, humanities. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a reason like, uh, when you study chemistry, you're not studying the humanities, you know, or when you study business, you're not studying the humanities, but it might be more accurate in 2019 to call business the humanities uh, because that seems to be more in in line with how people define themselves, certainly how we define communities and countries. Well, you know, corporations are people, right? So business is kind of the study of people when you think about it. <laughs> Hashtag deep. Um, so yeah, uh, is there anything else that we didn't cover about the film that you wanted to bring up I mean I think like you're saying this is one of my favorites so far oh yeah it was fucking devastating I I thought it was interesting that the title of the source novel uh, was My Abandonment it makes me want to read it I want to know whose perspective it's told from yeah Um, and I was also interested in the title change to Leave No Trace which is sort of a environmentalist code you know, yeah, you when you to... go into a park, right, that, that's your sort of the, um, oh, I had the word and then I lost it. It's a sort of command that's given to you, like leave no trace, leave things as you found them. Right, sort of clean thing. up after yourself. And and I wanted to sort of pose that question, like why, uh, it, my abandonment is a great title, um, give, you know, given this last scene of this movie. Um yeah, and so and like I, who's I wonder, abandoning who? Right, like you're saying whose right. point is that from? And I, it's like, I I would like to read the the book just to see if it has that kind of environmental angle, the sort of critique of society thing that's going on in the mm-hmm. film, um, or whether or not that's something that was added in when it was adapted. And if so, that would explain the name change, right? To to this thing that this phrase that is so associated with a conservation or like right. responsible use of land but it, like I said it also reminds me of that the the title change 
to leave no trace reminds me of that Cormac McCarthy quote I read from Sutri about he was a man with no plans to tell any soul what he'd seen or go back the way he came or something like that and it's almost like it's almost like Will doesn't want any trace left of himself you know like like he's trying he's trying to disappear the way he sort of does in that last shot where he's on the path and then walks in the woods and never see him yeah. again uh, and so it's, it's almost a, in a negative way he doesn't want to exist he wants to leave no trace that he was ever here yeah but because you know he has a daughter he doesn't really have that option like at the very least he's going to leave her behind right um, and so you know what what sort of ramifications that has we don't really know kind of have to think about that on our own yeah um yeah great movie yeah really good um i'm gonna watch it again for sure yeah it's it's really great um so next week we're going to be doing um another installment in anthropocene auteur theory and this will be number three and we'll be talking about the the katsi trilogy um, which I, I can't pronounce the titles right now, but I'm going to work on it for next week. Yeah, we'll, we'll do some research. Konya Nastasi Nakatsi. Konya Nakatsi. Konya Nakatsi. Something like that. Uh, An Italian film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, directed by, well, he sound, his name sounds kind of Italian, uh, but the American director Godfrey Reggio, I think is how that's pronounced. Um, this trilogy that is our first sort of step into non-narrative film so these are you know not your not your papa's films right um produced over a few decades so the first one is in 82 and then in 88 and then the last one in 2002 um they're all scored by philip glass which is another reason that i'm excited to see them um but yeah it's going to be interesting to sort of talk about yeah and the, the first one the one you know we can't pronounce any of the titles yet but uh, the first one has a sort of cult status yeah uh, and i i had heard of it but i had never heard of the second two i didn't know there was a trilogy yeah to, to make another simpsons reference like i did last week there's a episode where homer gets really into weed and he hangs out with otto the bus driver and they get high and watch the first one uh-huh. and isn't it called like koyana scratchy or like it it's like the character itchy and scratchy right Oh shit! Maybe I saw. I, I just was reading it like pop culture references. Maybe I haven't. I haven't seen that episode in years. So so probably. Um, so yeah, that's what we're going to be doing uh, next week, talking about those three films, and they're all kind of short. I saw the first one's like an hour and a half or something like that, okay. an hour and twenty minutes. Good. I don't know if the yeah, I don't know if the other ones are that short, but we'll see. Um, that's what she said. Hey, uh, and then before we we sort of sign off, I want to talk about something that we're going to be starting to do. Uh, sometime yeah <laughs> we're gonna get we're gonna become big tweakers uh, but sometime I guess in the next couple of weeks we're gonna start releasing kind of mini sort of episodes sort of like uh, just a little shot to get you get you about your day um, and I don't know what we're gonna call those yet but I was thinking like solo scenes like anthropo and anthropo anthropo shorts shorts. yeah (laughs) there we go so that's what they're called now salute your anthropo shorts i'm gonna write that down so i don't forget anthropo Anthropo shorts shorts. anthropo shorts hey so 
what those will be are just sort of smaller, like 10 minute or so kind of mini episodes about topics that are related or not to things we've talked about on the podcast that sort of are in the same orbit of things that we're interested in and that we talk about a lot. Um, they'll be more produced, so it won't be like just me and Will uh, talking about rambling about stuff. For... Charlie Culberson, for instance. <laughs> so uh, they'll be like a little more produced. I'll probably, well, I'm going to try to like do some music behind them. Uh, some some tasteful guitar work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see. Um, so those will be coming up or start being released probably the next couple of weeks or something like that, depending on, on when when we feel like doing them. Maybe this will never happen. I'll go back and like retroactively edit that out. Um, so next week, the Katsi Trilogy. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. We're available on SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts. Soon Stitcher. I'm uh, I'm working on that, but it takes a few days to get approved on that. So what is it? Stitcher. It's just another like service, oh. like podcast service. Cool. Um, so unless we get declined. Which is, is also possible. So so we'll see. Too many dick jokes. Yeah. The, Too many well, if we references. did, it would be because like not enough people listen. Something like that. Yeah. Probably. Um, but I don't think. I don't know how much they care about that. Um, so yeah, that's 